Hello, welcome back to On The Brain Podcast, where we showcase exciting research at the University of Calgary. Today, we talk about stroke. Have you ever thought about how stroke can affect the way you speak? How about the way you move? Dive into these topics and more in this episode. Welcome back to the On The Brain Podcast. I'm here with our second guest, Matt. Uh, and Matt's going to talk a little bit about uh, some of his research that he's doing here at the University of Calgary. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Um, so, yeah, my name's Matt. I'm a fifth-year PhD student now, uh, working in the lab of Dr. Sean Duclos in, in the HBI. Um, a lot of the work that we, we do is revolves around stroke, stroke recovery um, and stroke rehabilitation. Um, so our lab's probably best well-known for its work using robotics um, to try and better our... Um, diagnostics of sensory and motor deficits post-stroke, um, as well as developing novel uh, treatments for, for people with sensory motor deficits after stroke. Um, kind of the idea that if we can improve the way that we assess assess people um, after stroke, we can then start to tailor um, rehabilitation to their specific deficits and get some more personalized approaches. Yeah. Well, Matt, you talked a little bit about um, impairment after stroke, and I was hoping yeah. you could kind of just elaborate a little bit more on what kind of impairments we see after stroke. Yeah, so I think the, the main one people think about when they think of stroke is the, the obvious motor impairments that you see. So things such as uh, weakness on one side of the body, um, kind of spasticity or sort of a rigidity yeah. in, in the upper limb and lower limb, especially. Um, but I think one of the things that, at least the work that I'm doing um, is revolved around is about more of the kind of the deficits that you don't typically think about. Um, obviously, we can see that someone has a, a motor impairment, um, but we also see very commonly that people have issues with sensation. Um, and my own work is particularly in, uh, kind of investigating deficits in proprioception. So that's kind of our sense of of limb position and limb movement with the, without vision. So, for example, being where I can kind of scratch my back without looking at where my and, and you know that your arms back exactly without looking at it. Right? Um, and we see that. The issue with these deficits is that a lot of our kind of control of movement is reliant upon uh, sensation. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we can better kind of unpick these sensory deficits, such as proprioception, we can then ultimately try to improve sensation for the sake of improving sensation, but also to try and improve people's motor control um, as a result. So they're kind of like interlocked in a way, kind yeah. of motor and sensory are, yeah, are kind of, you know, they work together in a way. They do, yeah. A lot of... Uh, our motor capabilities rely on sensory feedback and a lot of sensory input to allow us to guide our movements and, and plan plan reaches right. and, and things like that. You know, a lot of the things that we do in our everyday lives, like, you know, picking up a glass of water, yeah, of you have to sense first where it is, right? Yeah, so, you have to sense where it is. You have to understand where your arms are at that given time to so then enable you to even start. Right. To, to so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, a lot of integration of sensory information actually goes into to performing movements right. that we don't typically i think people tend to kind of forget and they think oh motor motor impairments that's weakness got to do strength training or whatever but actually some of it is a more of a control based and you just have to be able to sense yeah yeah so matt we you talked a little bit about these sensory impairments uh that kind of happen after a stroke and you know for for like a motor impairment when somebody's like got weakness in their arm that's a little bit easier to kind of observe and quantify it in a way because, you know, you might have them pick up something or have them perform a, a very simple task and you might be observed this 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 weakness essentially. Um, but it seems like sensory impairments are a little bit harder to actually pick out uh, and a little bit harder to tell who, you know, might have a sensory impairment. So how to actually 
how do we actually assess these things in the clinic and what are some new kind of technologies that we're looking towards to do assessments? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with your question there that you mentioned that we observe these deficits. Um, and so in, in a clinical setting, someone after a stroke will come in and a neurologist will, will sit them down and get them to perform a battery of, of simple, simple tasks. And they literally observe their behavior and they give them a score right. based on a, on a scale or an mm -hmm. ordinal scale. Um, which can be very coarse. That an example with sensation is a, a test called the thumb localization test. Okay. Um, where the clinician will get the, the patient to close their eyes and they'll move their affected arm um, to a position um, with their eyes closed. The, the patient has to reach out with their eyes closed with their unaffected side and grab the thumb with their affected arm. Why do they move the affected side? Like the, I'm assuming the affected side is the side that impact the stroke impact. Yeah. Why did you yeah. move that one instead of having that one kind of perform? So, I mean, Typically, they do this assessment bilaterally, okay. um, but they'll move that affected arm because it takes out some of the motor impairments. It's hard to base right. someone's sensation in an active sense when that person is likely to also have a, a, a motor, oh, motor and they weakness. Can move and, yeah, yeah. So by make, moving that arm in a passive sense, you're getting a good, getting a, an idea of their ability to, to sense in that arm in a in a passive sense, right, rather that's... than with it having the compound of. Or some motor and they're obviously yeah. intertwined and, and yeah that's why you have to kind of look at sensory and motor kind of as separate as you can yeah so i, I guess uh, to rephrase that if we did the assessment the other way and they had trouble reaching their unaffected thumb um yeah it's hard to say whether that inability to, to perform that task is because they've not got the sensation in that that hand or that arm or yeah. they've not got the motor capabilities at that point in recovery right. to, to do so so by doing a lot of more passive stuff it allows us to kind of really tap into the sensation in that arm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, so the, the thumb localizer, so one of the issues with, with the, some of these clinical scales is that, so the clinician will observe observe the behavior and they'll give them a score based of zero to three based on how well they think that that person can do. And it's just kind of, it has that, you know, bit of subjectivity to it. Yeah, very subjective and yeah. what one clinician observes might be slightly different to another clinician. And, right. And it, Adds a bit of bias, and not bias is the wrong word, but in a way, yeah. Yeah, there's a subjective nature to it. To so, it. how do we get around that then? And yeah, so I think um, technology is the saving grace here. Um, mm -hmm. So, one of the things that our lab's well known for is its development of robotic assessments for sensory motor, motor capabilities. Right. Um, the advantage with, with robotic technology is that a robot's not, not got its own. It doesn't have brain, the bias. Yeah, it's not got the bias, so it basically records records what it's doing and what the person. So, mm -hmm. um, kind of our robotic systems, a, a patient will sit in the robotic exoskeleton, and the robot will move or detect the movement of their arms. Okay, yeah, using linkages and a lot of a lot of hardware and software that, that goes into it to to allow us to quantify people's behaviour in a very very objective objective manner yeah. there's no there's no interpretation in what it's, it's measuring right and do you see that kind of being the direction that a lot of these clinical assessments are going to essentially go um to kind of get away maybe from those observer-based assessments where you you know you watch somebody reach yeah. out and find their thumb of course. um rather to something where it's maybe a little bit more objective where where you're using technology to your advantage yeah i think in, a, in an ideal world uh we would go to a more quantitative and objective um, like things such as robotic technology but in a real world 
setting, you've got to consider that these devices that we use are very expensive. So right. in a in a bed in a clinic clinical setting, it might not actually be feasible to get everyone to have robotics. It would be great if we could, um, but I think for more allowing us to better understand um, recovery in a in, in a research setting uh, is a good starting point that we can then start to then translate that into the into the clinic. Right. So Matt, you, you mentioned recovery a little bit here, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about what recovery from kind of these sensory impairments looks like after a stroke. Yeah, so recovery from sensory impairments, I think looks fairly similar to recovery from motor and language impairments. So we see this uh, increase in people's function over the first six months post-stroke, um, albeit with a lot of variability within that. that right, how one different. person recovers isn't the same as how another person recovers, just the average tends to be that we see yeah. this, this kind of sharper increase in the first first few weeks and a couple of months after stroke and then it, uh, as we approach six months things start to kind of level out and recovery the recovery processes slow down and, and people like the gains they're making are just a little bit smaller yeah as you kind of get away from it yeah kind of we plateau a little bit and right so okay. a lot of the a lot of the early recovery um occurs through just spontaneous spontaneous mechanisms yeah brain recovery um, and whereas, that happens early. as we get out to close to six months it's a lot of the, the hard work and Kind of the mm. behavioral and therapeutic um, approaches. Right. Um, however, historically, it was thought that recovery stopped at six months. Um, right. But at six months, that's kind of what you're left with. But I think the field over the last 20, 30 years has started to change and realize actually that's really just the start of a, a patient's recovery trajectory. And oh, okay. that can be really where the, the hard work for these people really starts and that you, people can actually improve. Right, years, so they got to work years, harder kind of as you get further out to make, you know, the yeah. same progress, right? Yeah, it's kind of the idea that the brain's always changing. Mm -hmm. I'm saying you can't teach an old dog new tricks. Yes, you can. <laughs> yeah. That's, at least that's my, <laughs> well, that's my strong opinion that we can really see good recovery even years post-stroke. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so it, it's kind of to my understanding that, you know, you, you said that there's a lot of variability in recovery patterns. Yeah. Does everybody recover? Is that something that that happens, or you know, do people cover, recover at different rates, or you know, are there ultimately issues that people run into where some people are left with kind of lasting impairments that yeah. affect the rest of their life? Oh, of course, yeah. Um, we see some people that have great recovery, um, other people that ten years post stroke are still almost as as impaired as they were the day after the stroke happened. Um, it's something that we're trying to really understand in the field: is what is it that leads to someone having good recovery versus a poor recovery. Um, but right. we do, yeah, like you said, we do see people years post-stroke that are left with significant impairments. And right. it's where a lot of a lot of the the research and rehabilitation and the rehabilitation field I think needs to go and how can we help people years post-stroke that are still struggling with, with these impairments. Right. Yeah. And so it, you know obviously rehab, you know, um, there's a lot that can be done uh, I guess, to my understanding right now, there's a lot that we can do to kind of enhance it, to maybe make it better and to help those people that are not achieving, you know, a full recovery. Um, it's my understanding that you actually work on some kind of technology that, uh, you know, is designed to help people uh, kind of recover to a greater extent. Do you want to just talk a little bit about that and kind of introduce yeah, those ideas? Yeah, of course. Yeah. So I think one of the issues with current rehab is that there's a, there's a dose issue that we're not providing people enough a high enough dose of therapy to allow them to, to improve significantly. Um, so like you said, I'm working with two, actually two technologies that are designed to try to try to enhance 
the rehabilitation process. Um, the first being robotics again. Right. Um, the advantage of using robotics in a therapeutic setting is one, they're novel. They're, they mean they have a bit of yeah, the novel factor to patients that are coming through. It's a little, exciting, a little yeah. bit exciting. It's something different. It's not just sitting in a in a therapy gym, you know, moving blocks and doing whatever. Right. Yeah. So that's the novelty. We can design kind of two-dimensional video games in the system that we use. So oh, we get, cool. We get people playing Pong and kind of little games like that. And that's to help them kind of improve their kind of ability to move and yeah. kind of sense yeah. the, their, awesome. their limb space. And the stuff. nice thing with a robot is that we can also give assistance with movement. Um, but oh, the really? main, I think the main advantage is, is the dose one. That in, a, mm-hmm. in a typical setting, a clinical setting, and I think there was a paper in a few years back that showed that the average number of functional movements in a, in a therapy session was 30. You contrast that to to a robotic session where we have people doing hundreds of movements in in an hour. Right, There's so you can difference. deliver a lot more in a shorter yeah, of time. Yeah, I think if you're learning to play the guitar, um, you think 30 attempts at a song is going uh, yeah, to be enough to master it. Yeah. You need to drive home. Especially for those complex skills. Where yeah, of course. yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the, the technologies that I'm working with. Um, the second one is a form of... Um, non-invasive brain stimulation called transcranial direct current stimulation. Tell me a little bit about what non-invasive brain stimulation really is. So yeah. What does that mean? So it's essentially providing a, a stimulus or a stimulation, be magnetic or electrical stimulation to, to the brain without actually going in through the skull to the brain tissue itself. Right, so it's from the outside. Applied to the surface. It's yeah. not, you don't need to go and undergo um, a surgery, surgery or something to, yeah. to get it. It's, all surface level is passing currents and uh, magnetic pulses through the through the skull. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So the the form I work with is called transcranial direct current stimulation, or TDCS is its okay. acronym. Um, essentially, this is a a glorified electrical circuit. You place two electrodes on the on the scalp, um, one being a positive electrode or anode, one being a negative electrode, the okay. cathode. Um, essentially. The idea is that the brain essentially completes the circuit between the two two electrodes, and the passing of current through the brain can change or alters the, the excitability of the okay. the brain yeah. tissue, um, which then makes it more likely to fire when we pair that with some rehabilitation mm. exercises. Okay. Um, it's the idea that we can help the brain fire and rewire itself to allow people to regain regain function in the most simple yeah. simple terms I can think of. That's cool. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for coming yeah. on the show. Yeah, thank you. For uh, it's been a pleasure. And uh, yeah, best of luck with the rest of your PhD yeah. here and uh, for future research. Great. Thanks a lot.